You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Welcome back to Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L, with me, and he thought they smelled bad on the outside. It's Mr. <laughs> Jeff McLaughlin. <laughs> I don't even have a snappy comeback for that. That's that's how bad that is. Uh, What's up? How are you? Oh, man, I'm good. I'm doing real good. Well, we're going to change that. Oh, boy. <laughs> We're going to change all that. Occasionally, I will get messages from Mm -hmm. uh, the occasional listener. And one topic that comes around every once in a while, and some of these letters may or may not be from me myself, is is, uh, your vocabulary, your extensive vocabulary. So, dear listeners, you may have noticed that our friend Jeff uses words on occasion that you have never heard of before in your life. <laughs> I swear I'm not making them up either. No, he's not, and because I have to go look him up. So as an explanation, our friend Jeff is a published author. Mm-hmm. He writes under the name Jeff Dorigo, Jeffrey R. Dorigo, if you want to go look up his books. That would be cool. And, yeah, you've also have been an avid reader as long as I've known you. As long You're as I've just, been alive, pretty much, and able yeah. to read. Yeah, you've. I mean, you are just constantly just consuming books one after another after another. I do. I mean, reading them, not eating them. Yeah, it's dry. Sometimes I do eat them, but uh, you only cook books. And you went to college. You're, you have a, a degree in? I have a degree in English literature and European history. Yeah. So all that being said, the majority of the words that come into our friend Jeff's brain are usually in written form. Generally. Yeah, more so than than a conversation would. So let's let's briefly discuss some of the words that you have thrown at me over the past three years <laughs> okay. that I have had to look up. Okay. Yes. I'll say what they are, and then you uh, you de- define them for us, so that our listeners will have this little glossary, so that they'll know what the hell you're talking about. All right. The one I want to bring up first is the one we said uh, last week. I don't even remember what it was. It honestly sounded like something that you made up. And I yelled at you to speak English. <laughs> that has happened on a couple of occasions. Uh, generally, yeah. those get edited out of the program. <laughs> so what was that word that you used? The word was apocryphal is the word that I used. Okay. And could you please tell us what the hell you're talking about? Yeah, it's a story that everybody believes to be true but is not. Oh, all right. Without getting political, we'll say uh, kind of like Newton's apple. Yeah. That's that's George Washington's uh, cherry jar. Okay, very good. Yes. All right. Another one that you throw out is the Halcyon days. What on God's green earth, young Jeff, are the Halcyon days? The Halcyon days are the the good old days when you were a kid. When everything was good, back in the old days. I disagree that things were the good (laughs) old days. But generally, generally that's what Halcyon days means. I don't mean specifically to you, Bill. That when okay. things when you were a child things were good, but halcyon days generally means things were better. You remember things as being better before. All right. Uh, what was another one that you say a lot? I was like, all right. What does he say? What does he mean? <laughs> I mean, I could get it from like context clues because the way you use the word in the sentence, I kind of understand. But please just uh, define for us milieu. <laughs> milieu just means in the world, the world of. If you're in a superhero film, milieu of a superhero film might be a city. With gangsters and superheroes who jump from building to building or fly. That's the milieu. Oh, see? All right. I thought it meant this, something else. I, I, you <laughs> know, uh, for the audience, I'm just going to say this. This makes me feel really good about all of the trivia questions that I've gotten wrong is uh, <laughs> this conversation right here. And the last word I wanted to question you on was, I, I actually do know this one, but maybe some other listeners don't. Who knows? Erstwhile. 
erstwhile. Mm-hmm. I use that word all the time. <laughs> God, now I can't remember the definition of it. Not even in oh, context. Oh God, Bill. that was super easy. That means former. Former, yes, past. Because yeah. you say, "Oh, the erstwhile singer of Van Halen." Erstwhile singer of Van Halen, yes. All right, so now that that's all cleared up, we have uh, about 45 minutes to an hour to get through where Jeff is going to throw some other (laughs) word salad at me that I don't understand. Who knows? I'll try and truncate my vocab for you all. (laughs) All right, but before we get our show started, I do have the very popular and always well-received trivia question. Hey, Jeff. Uh Uh-oh. No oh, man. A couple of weeks ago, we were talking about Metallica with their MP3 stuff, yes, and all that. I remember. And I was thinking to myself, "Ooh, that will make for a good trivia question." What was the very first song that was encoded to MP3? The very first song encoded to MP3. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess at the end of the show, that's we'll, a good question. We'll find isn't out. It? it is a very good one. That question is tantamount right. to the quality of trivia <laughs> questions that we get here. So, this is going to be the week beginning, April the 17th, and it is your turn to start. April 17th, 1981, the film Caveman, starring Ringo Starr, his wife, Barbara Bach, a pre-cheers Shelley Long, and a cast of dozens upon dozens of others, including a stop-motion dinosaur premieres, and is lambasted by critics, and it does not make a ton of money. That movie is great. Goddamn any person walking this earth who says otherwise. It played so many times on cable TV, I thought Ringo Starr owned home box office for a while. I love <laughs> I love Caveman. I go back and watch Caveman even now, and I've seen it a million thousand times. It's ridiculous and very silly. It was constantly on HBO, but it's yep. probably because they got it for cheap, right? Yeah, I'm sure. And uh, what made the movie what it was is one, Ringo Starr from the Beatles is in it. And yes. two, the entire script was all in gibberish. Minus one they word. Had, was, I don't know if it was one word. The, there was, it was, it was, that sh- was, that that was, was the only word. Yeah, no, but that guy uh, spoke English. Uh, Nook spoke English elsewhere in the movie, too. Did he? Oh, okay. Yeah. And that was like, you know, in the uh, less politically correct times that uh, 1981 was, the one character that spoke English was Asian. Yes. Everybody else was all, you know, pretty European looking, and they all spoke this, like, made-up language because they were cavemen. They didn't, they didn't have, uh, they didn't really have too much of a spoken word. Right. It was like on they, all, a they, bunch of uggs and oogs. Well, there was a language that was built for the film, too. There was some common... I'm, I'm making air quotes, not that anybody can see me, but there was some common phraseology that was used. So, alunda was a word, and zugzug was a word, and matcha was a word. But And they were used right. enough so that the audience could understand them in context, although they weren't English words. Right. It follows on as a spoof of the film uh, One Million Years B.C. with Raquel Welch, which came out in like 1967 or 68. That film actually had a language track or a script that was built in a made-up language, but it was scientifically built. The one in right. Caveman was not. The one in Caveman <laughs> was super-duper simple, as if it was a bunch of like moderately intelligent children pretending to be cave people, and that's sort of right. how they did it. And it, I think that that gives it a tremendous amount of charm. And you know what else, too, is like that movie was on HBO like 1981, so you and I, we weren't even teenagers yet. And right. that movie is perfect. For somebody who's just about coming into their teens. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, irrespective of which way you go. So you either got yep. Shelley Long, Barbara Buck, John Matuzak, Dennis Quaid, or weirdly enough, Ringo Starr. But I guess he was only interested in women if they were only 16 and beautiful <laughs> and his. Definitely a far better movie than it had ever got credit for being. Like, like I was getting at, there was a lot of pretty and scantily clad girls in it. And lots of, you know, dick and fart jokes. So, yeah. What's, per- what's not perfect to love? For that, yeah, perfect for that time frame. Yes. Go out and find it in a tuk zug zug lada. <laughs> All right. Moving on to the 18th. 
April 18th, 1979, a very early version of reality TV, a variety show, I guess you could call it a variety show, called Real People Premieres. I remember watching this show every week as a kid, and for the life of me, I cannot remember how it functions. I get this show mixed up and mashed together in my brain with another similar program called That's Incredible. Right. Which was on at the same the same time period, but not the same day. Right. That's Incredible, and Real People had like a very similar format. They had an ensemble cast of hosts. That would bring up these like kind of like little different segments, except for That's Incredible was more about like, you know, superhuman feats or mm-hmm. kind of like weird science kind of stuff. Not the movie, just weird science stuff. So and then Real People was kind of like That's Incredible, but more comedic and weird, more funny stuff. So like more like slice of life. If I remember again, I'm going back now millions of years in human evolution to remember this program. It would have been like the, they're showing like not found footage, but some of it's found footage and some of it is filmed by their crew of like just stuff that's out in the world. So it might be like a news story about a guy who's a one man band and they talk about that guy who's a one man band and then they show a clip of that guy being a one man band and then they make right. fun of that guy for a minute and then that guy might come out. Yeah, they might bring him out on the stage, right? They right. might bring him on the stage and then. They leave that and it cuts to commercial for Jif peanut butter or something. And then they come back and it's like a football player who's got three arms or something. And it cuts to like a new story about that. And then they come back and they sort of, there's some banter about that. And then they, you know, as the show progresses, that's kind of how it works. And again, I could be wrong, but I think that's how it, how it functioned. The other thing that I remember that they used to do on the show that's kind of like a trope that they do other places is show misprints in the newspaper. Mm-hmm. Like funny misprints and stuff. Like the the David Letterman style. Yeah, David Letterman. I think Jay Leno was the other one that used to do stuff like that. Yeah. So, it, yeah, it really was a predecessor to a lot of stuff. But like you said, I everything about it sounds familiar, but I don't remember a lot <laughs> of it. I remember the stage was red. <laughs> I'll have to look and see if there are full episodes of it on YouTube. I'm sure someone has encoded them someplace. Yeah, I'm sure. And I can go watch I can name one some of the hosts. I remember Sarah Purcell was on there. Skip, skip something, something. Skip, Byron skip Allen. Skip Stevenson. Yeah, yeah, that was it. Skip Stevenson. Fred, I think uh, that's probably the first pro- place I saw Fred Willard before S before I ever saw SCTV. Right. On, yeah, Fred Willard this. was on there, and Billingsley there. Yeah, Peter, Peter Billingsley. Billingsley. He did the right. Real Kids segment on the show. Right. It was so funny. You know, for those of you who are, who who know that you know we we take some time to set the show up before we record it. Bill and I were trying to find like images of the cast because we couldn't remember how many there were or what they looked like. And I got to find out that Sarah Purcell has the same birthday as me. Go yes. Sarah. <laughs> it sounds like you owe her some birthday rent then. Back in the day, though, well, that could have been a big show off point for me. Right you know, back in uh, back in school. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the nineteenth. April 19th, 1967, the very first James Bond film is released. Do you know which film is the first film in the James Bond franchise, Bill? Well, up until now, I thought it was Dr. No, but Mm. I guess I'm wrong. You are indeed. The very first film in the James Bond franchise was a a film version of the first story that um, Ian Fleming wrote called Casino Royale, which introduced the character of James Bond, and it starred David Niven as James Bond. It's not in the film all that much. And Peter uh-huh. Sellers and Orson Welles, and what? it, yeah, it was directed by Blake Edwards, and it's very, very funny. Blake and Edwards. It, Blake Edwards, and it just touches on the James Bond story in the Ian Fleming novel because James Bond plays Baccarat with Orson Welles, who plays Le Chiffre, and but everything else that's going on around it is ridiculous. And that's really what the story's about. Is this like Nosferatu where they couldn't get the rights, so they just made another movie, basically? No, they had the rights, but I, I think there was an issue where they couldn't get the people that they wanted involved in it. And Peter uh-huh. Sellers had to be. So because Peter Sellers had to be involved in it, he couldn't be James <laughs> Bond. I, there's some like some weird political thing. And they ended up with this film, which was, it was relatively well-received and sort of washed in with a bunch of other films in 67 and kind of walked back out again. And James Bond did not become... A really successful character until not long after when the Broccoli family brought out Sean Connery as James Bond in Dr. No. It's worth a watch. It's pretty funny. Yeah, that's just really strange that 
you know, James Bond as a comedy without Mike Myers being in it. Right, right. They ended up doing Casino Royale as a straight film, though, didn't they? Yeah, they, years did, ago? they did. They did a straight adaptation. The very first one with um, Daniel Craig as James Bond is a straight adaptation of the Ian Fleming story. But that one again okay. features him playing in this. In, in this case, it's a poker tournament. In a poker tournament against Le Chiffre and being sponsored to try and to figure out where how he's passing like stolen information on to the I forget the name of the Spectre is the organization that he's part of, and that was uh. done based way more on the story than the very first one was. All right. Moving on to... Oh. <laughs> so this this is a weird thing about your friend Bill over here. So April 20th, 1940, the electron microscope is publicly demonstrated for the first time by the Radio Corporation of America Laboratory in New Jersey. It had a magnification of 100,000 times or diameters. For those of you who aren't familiar with pictures taken by scanning electron microscopes, you have to coat the substance that you're going to take a picture of in gold dust or it can't see it. But it takes super duper crystal clear pictures of teeny tiny things. I like to look at YouTube videos of people who have taken super duper crystal clear pictures of tiny things like ant faces or the legs of bees, or pollen grains, because they're really, really interesting to see, and they're so small you can't see them with the naked eye, the detail level. that See, that's the thing is I can't remember the word. It's like trick, trick I don't know, where you don't like patterns. Right. Like honey honeycombs and stuff like that. And looking at bugs' eyes sets that off for me. I don't like it. I don't like looking at it. I don't. I don't like bugs in general. I definitely don't want to know what they look like, you know, up close, <laughs> super up close. But I mean, you can also yeah. see other things like the scales on the wing of a butterfly. You can see grain, individual grains of sand or salt. You can see. You oh. can see the crystalline structure of stuff like sodium. It's really they're really really neat. Um, yeah, it'd be it. It would be really neat if I if it didn't like make me want to throw up in my mouth. The one you just <laughs> meant, the one you just mentioned, like. An extreme close-up of grains of sand. Ugh, ugh, no, oh no, I can't. I can't look at it. I don't even like imagining it. Oh, oh well, I, I, for me, I think that they're amazing, and they've. Oh no, it's another one too. Is it like this is a close-up of the mites that live in your eyelashes? <laughs> Why are you showing this to me? <laughs> yeah, well, because like, where else are you going to see those? You're not going to be able to. You, no matter how close you I get to the mirror, I don't want to see them, Jeff. No matter how close <laughs> you get to the mirror, Bill, you're never going to spot them. Good. Um, I was happy when I didn't know they were there. I love it, and I I love to see the the application of them. So I there's now you can watch a, a very short loop or a gif or a gif 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 of someone who took a series of of individual images showing a a needle on a phonograph going through the grooves of a record, and you can actually see physically how a record player needle stylus works. Like, you can't do that in any other way other than with the illustrations. So to get the actual I'm, physical, visual, actual pictures of, of it, it clarifies how the, how all that stuff sort of works. I'm fine with that as long as there's no, like, little mites living in there. I don't care. <laughs> there are no mites living in my records or in the records that I've seen the little gif slash gif of. All right. Moving on before I throw up. April 21st, 1977, Billy Martin, who is the manager of the New York Yankees, Pulls his starting lineup out of a hat and then goes on to mercilessly beat the Toronto Blue Jays eight to six. <laughs> that's not that bad, but they still, that's such a dick swing to do. Like, it definitely is. I don't care about my batting order. We're, we're going to beat you anyway. And it would have been really, really bad if they didn't win, you know? It, it goes to show that sometimes you're playing in the same league, but you're not playing in the same league. Yeah. You know, there's there are just stratifications in that league that are different, and it could be payroll, it could be the farm system that the team has, it could be the quality of the manager. And as anybody who's followed this show for three years knows, we've brought up Billy Billy Martin a couple of times because he's certifiably insane, <laughs> but he's a great baseball manager for a crazy person. That's gonna like almost like a mind game, you know. Like, hey, Toronto, we're, ju- we're going to pull the names out of a hat because, you know, you're Toronto, you know? Right. Th- 
So that's going to mentally attack them right. in some way, you know. I'm sure. How to keep it's one of those, it doesn't matter who you put on the mound, we're still going to beat you. It doesn't matter who right. you, how, how carefully you structure your game. We're going to randomly pull our guys out and we're still going to wail on you. And wail on them, they did. All right. Oh, my God. What is it with this week? <laughs> April 22nd, 1969. The first human eye transplant is performed. Yeah. 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 The way it says it here, the world's first total eye transplant, because up until then, I guess it had only been quarters and halves. (laughs) I think before it was, they transplanted corneas only. And this one was now the whole, like, like, it's out. Right. The whole kit and caboodle. Cut the cord. You know, and then put the new one in. Yeah, they put it inside of a 54-year-old photographer named John Madden. John Madden? <laughs> Boom! <laughs> I transplant. Oh, my gosh. I had his football game on my Sega Genesis. <laughs> yep. It was uh, it was his right eye, in case you were wondering. Ah. It doesn't say here if they were the, if it was the right color or not. Imagine they put, like, a bright blue one in there. He looks like a husky now. <laughs> Who, who's a good boy? <laughs> <laughs> or, or like a the super duper low rent like Soviet spy character who has to get into a particular base by using a retina scanner. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> Hello, I am. Uh, this eye does not belong to former guard of your facility. All right. So the uh, the <laughs> the operation took all of one hour, which seems seems a little speedy, don't you think? I think it probably would have taken less time if they hadn't played ping pong with the takeout eye first <laughs> for a little while. I dropped it again. <laughs> 15 love and, and uh yeah the uh, the donor had uh, had passed away uh, you know not long prior his name was ob hickman uh ob yeah 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 not to be confused with bo i guess yeah ob back for your eye later <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that uh, hickman i guess passed away from cancer and a brain tumor and they took the yes. eye like i don't want to say that they took it while he was still warm but I think they probably took it while he was still warm because they had to. Yeah, yeah. Hey, like, OB, you don't need this, do you? Right. And let's wrap up the week. April 23rd, 1988, a United States federal law bans smoking on flights that are fewer than two hours in length. Think about the the quality of the strangeness of that sentence now. Yeah. I'll read it again. Are you ready? Yes. 1988, a United States federal law banning smoking on flights fewer than two hours in length. <laughs> Sorry, guys, this flight is one hour and 45 minutes. You're not going to be able to smoke. Right. You're going to have a nicotine fit in the worst way as we're coming right. in for our landing. The thing is, like, the whole idea, and I flew in 1988 uh-huh. to North Carolina. was the first time I ever flew in a plane. I could smoke on the plane, and I did. And it was absolutely, like, the most normal thing in the world because everybody did everywhere. It didn't matter anything. Cars, restaurants, bars, it didn't matter. Sometimes right. in movie theater, if you were being surreptitious about it. And there's that word. There's that word. Now I think about it and I think, like, it's madness. It's crazy madness to think that we lived like that, Bill. <laughs> oh, right. I, I flew for the first time in 1990. So, mm-hmm. um, and I went to Florida. There was no smoking on the flight. You could smoke in the airport all right. you wanted, just not on the flight. Because right. I remember loading up on nicotine before getting on the plane. Right. And then another time I, I had flown to Las Vegas, you could vape on the plane, but you couldn't smoke. It's so like they didn't have those big vape things that make the huge clouds there. Yeah. It was still just the electronic cigarettes at that time. Right. You know, that look like cigarettes. Right. So I vaped when I was on the plane, but I mean, I kept it real subtle because I didn't want to like draw a lot of attention to myself. Right. So I just had it kind of like palmed like a magician. I would take a couple of hits off it here and there. And I wouldn't like blow out plumes of smoke. But right. I remember whenever like electric cigarettes first came out, people were just like puffing away on the plane. It's like, ha, huh, it's not smoke. Yeah, so you can't there, do Yeah. There were people who do that like in, in the office that I worked at. I'm like, really? Yep. And they're like, well, it's not a cigarette. I'm like, yeah, but it does. You know what? I don't want to smell that either. Yeah. And then for after it went from that to like people could have ones that tasted like things. Yeah. I would walk through a cloud of like waffles and syrup. That's the <laughs> weirdest goddamn thing. Like, oh my God, I just had a breakfast stroke. What is going on? They're like, oh, that's me. 
you know that's me i'm i'm smoking my my maple bacon like maple bacon yeah god yeah uh right after i quit smoking and vaping and all that when, when i quit nicotine I remember seeing an ad that one of the juices that you could get was called was a was a, it tasted like red velvet cake and I almost wanted to go back just so I could see what that tasted like but uh, I don't it's get better it. than it's better that I did it yeah yeah better than you did well I mean the, the weird thing now is you know thinking back as we sometimes do on this show right about the way that society's behaviors have evolved. That's the point. De- decade, yeah, decade to decade, right? We've talked about this before, like when the smoking ban in California bars went into effect, the very first state to enact a, a statewide smoking right. ban indoors, was how it seems so rational to do that now, where at the time yeah. it was like, that this, you can't do that. You're going to destroy all the businesses in all of the state at one time. What's wrong with you? You're going to ruin the economy. Ruin the economy, destroy everything. And it's so it's so strange to think that that was like how we did stuff. And, like, just recently in Massachusetts, and I guess there's some other states too, but I live in Massachusetts, where they banned flavored tobacco so you can't get menthol cigarettes. Right. And I have a friend that doesn't even smoke, but he hates that law. And it's like, um, I don't know, man. I smoked for 30 years. I can't really tell anybody how to live their lives, but trust me, the sooner you get off of it, the better. If you can do it without having them cut your chest open to let the smoke out, that's how you want to do it. Because the way that I did it, it sucked. And it has lifelong consequences, says the man with the 90-year-old heart. All right, let's get on to something happier, uh, the celebrity birthdays. First up, not only is this man the nicest wrestler that I ever met, not mm-hmm. only is he probably the nicest celebrity I've ever met, but he might be the nicest person I ever wow. met. Wow. Honest, honestly, yeah. April 17th, 1954. American professional wrestler, the hot rod, Rowdy Roddy Piper. He was the very first wrestling villain character that I ever looked forward to watching when I was Mm -hmm. first starting to watch wrestling as a kid. He was the ultimate bad guy. He really, really was. And what's funny about it, in his extensive career, he only played heel for three years. Yep. That's it. The rest of his career, he always played face. But he was such a bastard heel for those three years. That's how everybody remembers yep. him. He was, he was very but, good at it, too. Yeah. I met him. I met him in person. And, you know, and, and I'm talking to him for a little bit. And he's talking to me. And he's asking me about my T-shirt because I had one of my Haunted House shirts on. Mm-hmm. And I told him about, you know, uh, you know, doing seminars and stuff. And he goes, oh, that's something I, I, I think that'd be interesting to sit on in one of your seminars, teaching people how to scare people. And then we were kind of like, not in depth, but talking back and forth about the similarities between professional wrestling and haunted house acting. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a lot of improv and this, that, and the other. Suplexes and, all over the place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I'd love to suplex customers. I can drop off the top of the zombie building. But I said to him, I was like, look, I'm not going to make believe I know anything more about your world than what you let us see. But I always tell the new kids every year, don't go out to late breakfast after we close with your makeup on. Wash everything off. The show belongs back here. It doesn't belong out there. Right. Roddy Piper pokes me with like a a stiff finger right in the sternum, Mm -hmm. pokes me in the chest. And he says, you say you don't know, but you understand. Right. And my jaw landed in my lap, Jeff. I couldn't believe it. My childhood hero validated my existence. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. I I love telling that story. That's a a great story. He, He also did some acting, too. He was in a really good John Carpenter movie called They Live. In a really yes. terrible directed cable movie called Hell Comes to Frogtown. <laughs> yeah, he did a, uh, another movie where he played a wrestler, which it was called Body Slam. Yeah, that's Tanya right. Tanya Roberts was in it, but that's that wasn't right. very good either. No, that wasn't. But it, it, he wasn't the main character in Body Slam either. He was... No. No. But he was the main character in Hell Comes to Frogtown. And everybody I know that's met... I mean, he's passed away now, unfortunately, mm-hmm. but everybody I know that met him on like the Comic-Con circuits, yeah. everybody has an excellent Roddy Piper story. He yeah. was a really, really good guy. Sounds like he was a great dude. I wish I had an opportunity to meet him. 
You ever have an opportunity to meet our next birthday boy? <laughs> I didn't. April 18th, 1956, American actor Eric Roberts, who for a brief time was flirting with high stardom here in the United States in the movie The Pope of Greenwich Village, and in a really well-received film called King of the Gypsies, and then he sort of drifted into doing less prestige pictures <laughs> after that. Now, that's Julia Roberts' Julia older Roberts brother, brother, right? Yep. Yes. If, and if you look at the two of them side by side, you're like, oh, they, you are clearly related. There's another sister, too, because I remember Julia Roberts and her sister came through Spooky World, and they look exactly alike. Yeah. What mo- I remember the Pope of Greenwich Village. What other movies did he was in, our he friend was in Eric Roberts do? King of the Gypsies, which I only remember coming out because that came out when I was really a little kid. He was yep. in Star 80, the story of Dorothy Stratton. He played her crazy town boyfriend who killed her. Oh, that was him? That was him. Uh, he was the boyfriend? Okay. He was the boyfriend, yep. yep. I remember he, seeing that movie. He was in a film called Raptor, where he was... He looked like he didn't Not know... Not one I've seen. He looked like he knew that he was in the movie, which is how I sort of describe how much fun it is to watch Raptor, because he looks completely baffled by everything going on around him. And okay. then the rest of the film is stock footage from the movie Carnosaur. It's awesome. Oh, wait, no, I saw... I didn't see Raptor, I saw <laughs> Carnosaur. Oh, well, there you go. Then you've pretty much seen half of Raptor. The other half features Eric Roberts looking confused um, and a bunch of puppets. But uh, Yeah, puppets are like smaller than my forearm. Yep. It's so obvious how like not big they are. Uh, but he's... Oh, no. All right, let's move on to the 19th. Somebody who's been in a bunch of movies, but I can only think of two. <laughs> <laughs> well, two and a half. Two and a half. Um, Born April 19th, 1935, Dudley Moore. Yeah. Uh, probably best known for Arthur II on the rocks. <laughs> I mean, it was a big deal when he was in, again, another Blake Edwards uh, film, 10, which I remember being yes. a big deal when it came out. Because Yeah, whenever you, whenever you brought up uh, the James Bond movie directed by Blake Edwards, mm-hmm. that's why I jumped because I knew that Dudley Moore was coming up uh, later on. It's like, Blake Edwards? Yeah. He did a whole bunch of sort of situation comedy films in the 1980s, coming off mm-hmm. of a career in the 70s where he was in a lot of ensemble comedy movies. So he used to work right. with a guy named Peter Cook. They were on a, a TV show in Britain and a radio show called The Goon Show that spread okay. out into a couple films. He made Bedazzled, where he played Stanley Moon, who sells his soul to Peter Cook the Devil instead of killing himself. Right, they remade that with, with Brendan um, Fraser. and um, Brendan Fraser and Elizabeth Hurley, Elizabeth yes. Elizabeth Hurley, right. And he was also in Monte Carlo or Bust, which was this ridiculous car race movie that was modeled on the New York to Paris auto race. Yeah, I and, remember that and, too. Right, and then and then he ended up he ended up doing like more romantic comedy stuff, like Ten. What was the one with Liza Minnelli? Arthur. That was the very first Arthur. That's Arthur. Yeah. Yep. Two things about Dudley Moore. Interesting bits. One, a fantastic piano player. Yes. I remember watching him on a like uh like the Jerry Lewis telethon or something and he was like playing like the devil. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is he had a club foot. So he had like one foot that didn't have like toes on it. Oh. Things get to know me. Things how many things, toes things I never knew about Dudley Moore. That was a that's you're wasting yeah. a trivia question, Bill. You're wasting a trivia question. Yeah. Next week's trivia question. How many <laughs> toes does Dudley Moore have? <laughs> oh damn it. Uh thank God my memory is greater than that of a goldfish. All right. Moving on. All right. April 20th, 1949, American actress Jessica Lange, who got her start in American cinema as Dwan, girlfriend of Carlo Rambaldi's King Kong, as played by Rick Baker. Absolutely stunningly beautiful, like absurdly beautiful in that movie. Like, I I don't even like looking directly at her. It's too much all at once. <laughs> like, how are you that good looking? She's a super talented actress, too. I mean, beyond yes. beyond you know attracting the the love, lust, and other of Rick Baker in a gorilla costume, right? She was great in the biopic of Francis Farmer. She's been in all kinds of different movie types, as opposed uh-huh. to I mean, say what you want. Kong was a big budget, very B movie when it came out, and really transitioned into stuff that was way better than that. Recently, or semi recently, anyway, in the past decade or so, she was in the first I think four seasons. Of American Horror Story. Yes. Even as an older woman, she's still stunningly beautiful. And and uh, an amazing actress. She played great parts on those series. Absolutely compelling to watch. Love love her stuff. And 
And the series has definitely gone downhill since she's left it. So she wasn't in. I think the what season was the hotel? Because that was the only one that I watched. That must have been the fifth because she wasn't in that one. Yeah, I think she. I think she jumped off after Freak Show. Yeah. But moving on, born in April twenty first, nineteen forty seven, James Osterberg, or as the world knows him, Iggy Pop. Oh yeah, he's a real wild one, wild one, wild one. Yeah. Iggy Pop got his start with the Stooges. Yes. He was in a punk band called the Stooges. Probably best known for being in uh, Crow 2, City of Angels. <laughs> was he? Yeah, he was the villain in that movie. Oh, no kidding. I like Iggy Pop. He's a very, like, very interesting character, even outside of his music, just to see him. Yeah. Like in interviews and stuff like that. One of my favorite quotes from him was I remember he was sitting in a hot tub. Uh, it was like an MTV interview. And he says, I am completely straight, but I still think stoned thoughts. And then he crossed <laughs> his eyes and stuck his tongue out. <laughs> uh, nice. I liked his like kind of weird late career flirtation with pop music when he put out the Brick by Brick record. That was like 1990 yeah. or 91 or so. And that was where I really started to like listen to him. And then I went back through the back catalog of his solo stuff mm-hmm. in the Stooges and found it all. But I really liked that late career stuff for him because he's such a – he's like a grizzled veteran who – all of his songs yes. are like telling stories about horrible things that you never want to experience. You know what I mean? In that yep. late period. And he has a voice that, that sounds like – the sort of person you hear telling these, singing these songs at like a really seedy bar, but you know the songs are all super duper heartfelt. <laughs> I will routinely, like once a year, about go back and revisit his blah 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 album from 1986. Mm-hmm. Yep. That album's fantastic, cover to cover. Yes, agreed. Especially that title track. That one sticks out for me. I like that one. All right, moving on. April 22nd, 1959. Canadian actress Catherine Mary Stewart. You may not recognize her name, but if you see her face, you'll go, oh, that's the girl from Night of the Comet. Probably best known for Perfect Harmony. <laughs> nope. <laughs> I didn't even know that was a movie. Yeah. Uh, she was in Weekend at Bernie's. I can say that much. Yep. She was in Weekend at Bernie's, a film that is uh, dreadful to sit through, I think. <laughs> a movie that proves that you can stretch one joke out for an hour and a half. You can stretch it out Actually, for two movies if you're the Italian yeah. government who paid for the second film to be made. <laughs> Just putting that out there as a thing. She, I don't think she was in the second one. Even she was like, uh, no. The last Starfighter is Alex, Alex's girlfriend. Alex Rogan. Alex Rogan, that's right. And had the whole like, B-plot with the Alex Rogan stand-in android when he was off learning how to fly the spaceships. She's been in a lot of things, but like, I'm looking at them and I'm like, nope, didn't see it, didn't see it. Never heard of it. Didn't right. see it. Never heard of it. I think that that one she ended up doing more like stuff that was in Canadian cinema. That's entirely possible. She's also got some television shows that she did. All of them I've never seen either. Beautiful woman. I'm just surprised she didn't do much more. You know. Right. Maybe she needs another agent. They should have made a Night of the Comet too. <laughs> the morning after the comet. <laughs> You're right. Night Night of the Comet Part Two. The the cometing. The return of the comet. Comet vomit. And here's somebody that's done very little outside of what we all know her from. April 23rd, 1949, American actress, Joyce Duet. Oh, I, I remember yeah, her. Probably best known as playing Janet on Three's Company and little to nothing else. I remember her playing herself and I, as a, a cameo appearance. And no, I'm just kidding. I only remember her <laughs> from Three's Company. I don't remember her seeing her in anything else either. That show, that show yeah. seems to have had a curse. Unless you were John Ritter. Yeah, for sure. Everybody else that was on that show, like, they didn't really do too much else afterwards. Yeah. Like, Suzanne Summers, you know, she's the sheriff or whatever the hell. Right. John Ritter did some stuff, you know, but, I mean, he's a hell of a talent. Well, he did, yeah, but he didn't do a lot until until he ended up in Sling Blade. Like, he, remember the movie? Switching Channels. He was in Problem Child. He did a bunch of stuff. Just nothing... He never made that big transition. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Yeah, he was uh, he was he was the the foil for the little kid in Problem Child. Yeah, he he never made that huge jump. It should have been much bigger, but a much bigger jump than Joyce Dewitt. <laughs> yes. 
But then again, we've said this before, not everybody wants to be a mega superstar. Joyce DeWitt probably just looked at these residual paychecks that she's getting for the nine seasons that she did with Three's Company and like, I can live off this, right. you know? And uh, from what I understand, she did some like stage acting, which she always loved doing. She did stage acting before she got involved with Three's Company. So it's like, hey, Joyce, are you happy? I sure am. Well, then awesome. That alone should be lauded for the quality of in a person that it is to know that you've, you know, you've managed to like hit your goals and now you can just enjoy the rest of your life. And I said, hey, Joyce, how's it going? And she said, well, life's been good to me so far. And I was like, (laughs) hey, that reminds me of the worst song ever. Okay, Jeff. It is your turn to pick a song for this week. What do we have in the canon for this week's worst song ever? Yeah, this week we are talking about classic rock sort of, I don't know if he achieves rock god status, but if you listen to rock and roll radio at all or talk to anybody within the last 40 years and you say, Joe Walsh, they're going to go, life's been good. That guy's great. Love that song. He's got a Maserati. Oh God, I does love 185. Joe Walsh. I love Joe Walsh. And I'd say, name four songs. They go, there's that one about the Maserati. Yep, there's that one. Yep. And there's the one where life's been good. That's the same song as the one. Nope, nope, that's a different song. And he lives in a hotel. Same song. Same yep. song. Oh, well, we're not talking about that song today. We're talking about one of the other tremendous groups of filler tracks on his other records. <laughs> we're talking about the song Space Age Whiz Kids. Okay, so <laughs> let's call a spade a spade. This is terrible. It is, this not, is a good, not, not, a, not good. No, it's not. Not at all. Like Joe Walsh, like we've established, is very popular. Everybody knows and everybody loves Joe Walsh. But when you brought up doing this song, I was like, oh, I remember the video. Because this came out in like, what, 83? Yeah. Right? Yep. So the whole like quarter muncher arcade trend of America was just really, really, really getting a big ball rolling at that point. Yes. And this was kind of like a I'm too cool for that. Kind yeah. of like a an anti-trend kind of a song. Definitely falls into the these crazy kids type yeah. of song. Get off my lawn. Get off my lawn. Yeah. I don't understand. Why aren't you out playing baseball like I used to play when I was a kid? You're all spending right. all your money playing that Pac-Man game. That Pac-Man game's taking all your quarters. Yeah. You're going you're you're to get eyeball your- cancer. You gotta warp your brain with that Donkey Kong. Right. Why don't you do pounds and pounds of drugs like we did? <laughs> like learn to play a guitar, then you can get, get access to all kinds of narcotics. Yep. Yeah, and so I'm I'm somebody who's been a longtime fan. I've been a longtime fan of Joe Walsh. I, I used to have I had a run of cassette tapes, so now we're obviously going back in time. Yep. From his period here. So I had like but seriously folks, there goes the neighborhood. The Confessor and Got Any Gum. In the middle of that run of records is this record. You bought it, you name it. And I never bought it because all the songs on it suck. (laughs) (laughs) Of all the songs on it that suck, this song is the least sucky of it, and it's awful, and it's the only single. I can't remember ever seeing the video on MTV for this song. When I found the the video on YouTube, I'm like, what is this? This is awful. I was like, because whenever it came out, it was like, I see the video, it was like, Joe Walsh. I was like, oh, wait, I like Joe Walsh because I remember his <laughs> other song, Life of Illusion. Right. So I see the video, and of course, they're showing arcade games, and I'm like, ooh, all right, this is going to be for me. It's got Joe Walsh, and it's got arcade games. This is going to be for me. And then he starts just, like, taking a whole, like, huge sh- on video games. I'm like, I don't think I like Joe Walsh anymore. Right. Yeah, he was complaining. He was like, he was like 34 years old. And he was, he was complaining about like the kids today. Man, right. at 34 years old, I was the kids today. You know? Yeah. Um, Joe Walsh is, is the sort of guy who's, he falls into the category of solo artist. He's great when he has a really tight band with him who kind of keeps him working hard to write good songs. So when he's in the James Gang, there's a, a bunch of songs in James Gang that are great. 
They yeah. left. Those two guys took off. And then he went solo. And all of his solo albums are like, there's one kind of okay song. There might be one really good song, like Rocky Mountain Way. Everyone knows that one. Yeah. Or Life's Been Good. Everyone knows that one. And then there's just reams of completely forgettable blah. It's The songs are all structured the same. They're not interesting. The lyrics are stupid. And it's poorly produced. He has one amazing album that is spread out over like 35 years. Yeah. <laughs> he definitely does. Yeah, he's, he's a living embodiment of the greatest hits record or the best of album. I remember the, the, that video that was on MTV all the time, uh, Life of Illusion. Yeah. And yes. it's on an album called There Goes the Neighborhood, which right. I bought. I remember even as like an 11 or 12-year-old kid listening to the album and then Life of Illusion was like sandwiched in the middle somewhere. Yes. So like I'd have to get through like a majority of the album to get to Life of Illusion. And it's like, oh, I don't oh, – the only song I like on this is Life of Illusion. Little did I know that that was his like calling card of one right. good song and the rest is all just you know throwaway tracks. Yeah, it's, it all sounds like half-written, sort of, eh, he sort of shrugs his shoulders. He's like, nah, is that, you know what, that's good enough. We're going to print that one. Yeah. I'm sure that the people in the booth are like, all right, oh, jeez, you know what, we're going to get paid anyway, right? <laughs> all right, print, done. All right, Joe, your record's done. And he's like, great, I'm going to go do cocaine with Stevie Nicks. And off he went. <laughs> um, oh, you better uh, hurry up because it's going to be all gone. You know what I thought was really interesting was he was in the Eagles for like one and a half albums. Yes. And he replaced, I can't remember the guy's name, but the guy that he replaced in the Eagles, he was the reason that a lot of Eagles songs sound like country Western music. Right. And why the stuff with Joe Walsh is the best stuff the Eagles ever did. <laughs> I, I always maintain that Joe Walsh's best song is In the City. Yeah. Which is that's an Eagles song, that's, right? <laughs> that's an Eagles song. That's an Eagles song. But he sings it. It's his best guitar licks. It's the it's the song that is best structured. It's the most memorable. It's the one that I actually, in some strange way, because I don't really like the Eagles at all, look forward to if I'm listening to the particular era of music on the radio. Like, I know I'm going to hear like, bow, bow, down, I'll be like, yeah, all right, Joe Walsh and the Eagles. And uh, this is a great song. And then, you know, you hear like Life of Illusion. And it's just... Okay. All right, I remember. I thought the yeah, tank was cool like, in the video when I was a kid, and my dad yeah. was infatuated with the thrown-away toilet that I can see in the cover picture here on my screen. <laughs> uh, another thing that I thought was an interesting little bit about him being in the Eagles is not only did they bring him into the Eagles because he was a you know he's a great guitar player, but mm-hmm. because he was a lot of fun. Right. He's like a really funny, like laid-back, I mean, high. If you want to read into it that way, but apparently right. he's like, uh, I mean, everybody loves Joe Walsh, and they brought him into the band basically to keep everybody else from fighting. Yeah, because the Eagles all hated one another, so they brought yeah. Joe Walsh. But even he couldn't, you know, squelch that fire. Like <laughs> a couple years in, he's like, yeah, you know what, I'm out. See, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go make some mediocre records with one good song on them each. <laughs> well, I mean, the bottom line though is he left the Eagles, and what did the Eagles put out that was any good? Nothing. Nothing. They broke a up. Live record, a live record with right. Joe Walsh and the Eagles, <laughs> and that's it, you know? Yep. No, oh, yeah, he was the last straw for that band, I guess. Yeah, yep. So anyway, back to this, the song in question, which features all the hallmarks of the only okay song on a Joe Walsh record. Very simple lyrics. Yep. And a good bluesy guitar solo, even if it doesn't fit the rest of the music. Yep. For 1982, this one has a lot more techno noises in the background than any of his other stuff, but that's part right. of the course for this year. And a music video that is, it looks like it was made for the cost of four Twinkies if you bought two of them and you got one and a half free. I want to bring up a point, okay? So mm-hmm. this song, Space Age Whiz Kids, yes. Life's Been Good which my friend Taylor loves that song, or that's like her father's favorite song. She's got it tattooed on her arm. Um, And and it is a good song. But Space Age Wiz Kids, Life's Been Good, another song that came out called Ordinary Average Guy. Remember that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not a good song. Not a good record either. (laughs) One good song on it. And another song off an album called Gutney Gum called The Radio Song. All four of those songs are exactly the same song. 
<laughs> they really are. I mean, when you have a when you have a structure that works, that you go with it. It's like Creedence Clearwater Revival, right? Yep. They've got the up tempo song. There's the song that talks about like bayous and stuff. There's the the cover that they're going to do of a Motown track. There's a couple of filler songs, and then boom, they're out of the album. They got five gold records. Wham, wham, bam, done. Yep. And he does the same thing, except it's like he puts moderate effort into one song that's kind of okay, and then the rest of the record is is noodling around. Is what it feels like. But for these songs, you're right, though. They are structured the same way. They're about the same length. The guitar solo takes place at the same time in the song. Thematically, they're all very similar. Lyrically, they're kind of silly, but not funny. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. He's still out there doing stuff. He's. He, I think he's playing with Ringo Starr's band now. Oh, yeah. That wouldn't shock me. That's no, like, that'd be a really good fit, actually. All right. So, before we wrap up the show, I do have my very popular and always well-received trivia question. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Bill. What was the very first song that was ever encoded to the MP3 format? Oh, man. Uh, uh, can I Would you like a, a hint? I can give you a hint. All right, I'll take a hint. In my humble opinion, this is a song that a lot of people like, and I think they're lying. <laughs> I find this song pretentious and horrible. Oh, uh, that means it must be a U2 song. So, is it? <laughs> I'm going to say it's uh, uh, Where the Streets Have No Name by U2, no. which I no. find incredibly pretentious and annoying. Nope. This is well, way, more preten- try. way more pretentious. Way, way more, more pretentious annoying. than Where the Streets Have more, No Name? The first song that was ever encoded to MP3 is a song called Tom's Diner by Suzanne oh, Vega. Oh, yeah, okay. Suzanne Vega. It is always nice to see you, says the man behind the counter To the woman who has come in, she is shaking her umbrella And I look the other way as they are kissing their hellos And I'm pretending not to see them, and instead I pour the milk Yep, that was the first song ever encoded. The song is completely a cappella, and the reason why they chose that song is they didn't care what happened to it. No, uh, the reason why they t- <laughs> the reason why they chose that song is because it's a cappella. They wanted to make sure that the vocal presence didn't break right. down in compression. Oh well, I guess that makes sense. And I actually I do know that song. I don't hate it, but I also don't love it. All right, but that is going to wrap up the show for this week. We will see you back here in seven days. Say good night, Jeff. Good night, Jeff. Bye, everybody. All right, bye, guys. A special shout out to James Costa for our theme music. Thank you for listening to Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. You know, you can find us or message us over at Facebook or Instagram. Just look for Twibbly. That's T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. And don't forget to subscribe. You may just find out your favorite song is the worst song ever.